How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, likewise, therefore, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I want you to picture, if you will, tonight, a, a man with um, the faucet in his bathroom open, full blast, and the water's running in his bathtub, and after a while, I think Ed can probably relate to this, after a while, the water fills the bathtub and starts spilling over and just water's everywhere, and the guy's frantic. And so he grabs him a mop, and he starts mopping, and he can't mop fast enough to mop the water up. The water's still running. He's, he's an Aggie. And uh, uh, the water's still running, and he, 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 so he decides, you know, I gotta have me a bigger mop. And he goes out right quick and buys him a bigger mop, I mean a gigantic commercial size. And he's mopping with this huge mop just as fast as he can. He, he, he says to himself, I've got to mop faster and I've got to mop harder. And the harder he mops and the faster he mops, the more water he soaks up. So if you're going to measure how much water he soaks up and, and with his mop, he's great, he, he's tremendously successful, but... He's not mopping up as much water as the faucet's putting out. So he decides, he thinks to himself, you know, I ought to get some training in mopping. Maybe take me a study course. I'm going down to associational a meeting and, <clears throat> and I'm going to get me a study course on how to more effectively mop. And he, he becomes the most trained mopper in the association. I mean, he's got mop degrees on the walls everywhere, and the water just keeps on running. And he goes off to a conference on, you know, where everybody gets together and 
You have these guys that have just been so successful in mopping up water, and they get up and give their testimony on how they mopped up, you know. And he makes a decision in that uh, conference. He rededicates himself to be a better mopper. And he makes a promise down at the altar on his knees at this conference that never again is he going to open up a faucet. He's never going to turn on a faucet again. The water is still running. And finally he decides that God didn't intend for him to live in a dry house in the first place. I mean, you can't be perfect. So he goes down to the sporting goods store and buys him a snorkel and some, some flippers. And he decides that he, if he can just kind of keep his head above the water, he's going to be okay. Now, that's a ridiculous story. I want, you're wondering, what is the application of that? Here's the application. The water on the floor represents the sins in your life. And the faucet, the source of those sins, is the self-life. Let me tell you something. You might as well get ready for it. The self-life can produce more sin than you can mop up. Now most of the time when you hear a sermon preached, it's a sermon on how to do a better job at mopping up the sin. I mean it's usually a sermon on or a lesson on how to recover when you fail. You know you can teach driving two ways. You can teach a person driving by giving them, you know, say now here's going to be the first aid station and let me give you the number and the name and the number of the wrecker you know, that you can call and, and, and here's some, you know, carry this gauze and bandages in your car with you. I mean, you can give them all kinds of instructions about what to do after the wreck. Or you can teach somebody how to drive by, you know, giving the instructions how to prevent a wreck. Now, what I've all, most of the time, what I've heard in my Christian life is, you know, how to deal with the sin after you sin. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins. The question I have is the question that's raised in verse 2. How is it, is it possible to ever be able to come, ever come to the place in the Christian life where I don't have to sin? I mean... Is there some kind of preventive theology? Now, if it is true that I have died to sin, why am I still sinning, you see? So is there a method that God has to prevent me from sinning in the first place, to prevent the wreck from happening, to prevent the water from getting on the floor? Well, there is. Now, I want you to take a pencil, and I want you to circle three words. I want you to circle the word no. It's found in verses, I think, 3, 6, and 9. The word no. And then I want you to circle the word consider that's found in verses 11 and 12, and then the word present in verse 13, because there, there's the key. The prevention of sin is based upon what we know, what we consider, and how we present. Now, when God set out to deal with the sin problem, and everybody has a sin problem, 
When God set out to deal with a sin problem, to deliver us from sin, what did He do? How did He deal with a sin problem? He always dealt with a sin problem with one method, and that method was death. I want you to kind of let that soak in a minute. The way God dealt with a sin problem, always has dealt with a sin problem, is by death. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, how did God cover them? How was that propitiation? That's what the word propitiation means. It means covering. Well, because of their sin, there had to be the death of an innocent animal for the covering, and so He took the skin and covered them with it. Um, Even Moses had to die before God's people could get into the land of Canaan so that all the way through the Scripture, death always precedes life. Always precedes life. So that death always precedes abundant life. You remember the story of... of, um, Joshua in the, in the new land, and they came to Ai, and Achan sinned, and he took that, those uh, forbidden treasures, and he hid them in the tent of his, of his tent, and, and the result of their sin, they were totally helpless. They got defeated in the next battle, just completely wiped out. And when they found the problem, the disobedience of Achan, There was one solution before the people of God could accomplish victory, and that solution was he had to die. Death always precedes life, and and listen carefully, death always precedes abundant life. Now listen carefully. I mean, this this gets down where the water runs pretty deep, so... Hang in here with me. When Jesus died on the cross, His death did more than take away the sins of the world. What is man's basic problem? It's not what he's done, but what he is. So that I not only sinned, I'm sinful. And not only did Jesus die on the cross, but the Scripture says that we died with Him. Now that's just what you, you sang a little bit ago. I, I've been crucified with Christ, yet no longer I live. I mean, did you really mean that? Did you, did you understand what you, 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 you were singing? I mean, I mean, this is yes, this is no. What, what happened when Jesus died on the cross, not only did He die for our sin, but the Scripture says that we died with Him. And over and over and over again in the sixth chapter, the scripture says, we have died. The reason why the cross saves the sinner is because the cross slays the sinner. And the old self dies there with him. Now, assuming that you are a Christian, then you died with Christ at the cross. That's what baptism is. I I, I imagine when you read down through this, you were thinking of water baptism. It has nothing to do with water baptism. Baptism, the word baptism comes from the Greek word bato, and it means to immerse, to place into. And when 
We are in Christ when we have been immersed in Christ. Then when he died, then we died with him. So death always precedes abundant living. And if we died when Christ died, immersed in him, then that's the solution to the problem. Now, I want you to get two things or three things concerning the answer, concerning what we must know. Here's what we must know. Number one, that our death was established at the cross and this saves us from the penalty of sin. Our death was established at the cross and this saves us from the penalty of sin. Now what we need to do, the first thing we need to do is to establish the time of your death. Somebody said to me, well, I, I need to know how to die. Well, if you're a Christian, you ought to have. See? And what we need to establish is not your death, but the time of it. Now Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and that's what chapter 6 talks about. It talks about dying with Christ I assume then that the time of my death was the time of his death. Now, I'm not a Harvard graduate. I'm not completely stupid, you know, however. Now, if I said to you tonight that I came to church with Margaret, you, you, you basically going to assume, aren't you, that, that when I say that I came to church with Margaret, that I came to church at the same time Margaret did. I mean, you... you is that going to be kind of logical? Right? If I said that I came to church, let me come back again and see if I can hit you a second time and you might catch it. If I said I came to church with Margaret, you're going to assume that I came to the church at the same time Margaret did. Wouldn't you assume that? This is yes. This is no. All right? If, if the scripture says that you died with Christ, doesn't that mean that your death, the time of your death, was established at the time of His? I mean, it makes sense to me. The old man was crucified with Christ. He died with Christ. It means that I died the same time He did. You say, I, I don't see how that can be. Well, we have trouble with time. But all things are present tense with him. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, the scripture says. There's no time with him. You just leave that to God because the scripture says that we died when he died. Now that means two things. Watch this. If I died with Christ at the cross and I'm identified with him by faith, I'm assuming that, if I died with him at the cross, that frees me from the charges of sin. That frees me from the charges of sin. Now listen to me carefully. When I am in Christ, there can never be a charge leveled against me. Now let me get the, give you this scenario. On my way home from church this morning, suppose I pass by the Easy Mart up here and and I saw a bunch of police cars there and a lot of activity, so I pull up and I'm curious and I wonder what happened. He said, well, there's been a robbery here, an armed robbery. A guy came in here with a pistol and stuck his place up and robbed us, the clerk and left with all the money. 
And everybody's kind of milling around there. And this guy walks up and he said, I know who did that. I know who did that. He said, I, I was an eyewitness to it. He said, George Washington robbed this place. Now, George Washington. You, you mean the George Washington, the father of our, that's the one, the father of our country? The guy that wore the funny wig and the wooden teeth? Yeah, that's the guy. Cut down a cherry tree, that's the one. I, he did it right here. I saw him, I'm an eyewitness to him. Yeah, I said, you know what, they, they think the guy was, would you think he was crazy? I'm, I'm sure you would. I mean, they'd haul you off if you, you know, came up and put you in a, a, a straight jacket and get a net and carry you away. And the guy's saying, well, that's impossible. That, that man couldn't be responsible, couldn't, you know, he couldn't do that. He's been dead over 200 years. You know what the devil likes to do? He's the great accuser. And he likes to accuse you and lay a charge against you. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. There is no charge that can be leveled against you because you died 2,000 years ago. See what I'm saying? Now you ask me why I believe in the doctrine of the security of the believer? That's the reason I believe in the doctrine of the security of the believer. Because in Christ... I died a long time before I ever committed a sin. You say, what a strange, mind-boggling thought. I mean, there can be no charges leveled against me. In Christ, you see. Now watch this very carefully. God sees you either in Adam, that's what we studied last week, He sees you either in Adam or He sees you in Christ. And if He sees you in Christ, no charge can be leveled against you because you were dead for whatever happened. Isn't that wonderful? There's a faint amen. Should be a hallelujah from about 100 people. Second, or third. Because my death was established with him, I'm free from the control of sin. Look at verse 6. He says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You know what a slave was? A slave was a person who had absolutely no freedom of his own. Somebody told him everything he was to do. Told him when to go to bed, told him when to get up, told him when he could get married, when he could have children. A slave was totally without freedom or authority or privilege. But now suppose the slave dies. He's no longer responsible to the slave master because of his death, see. And that frees him from the bondage. It separates him, removes him from the bondage. That's what Paul is getting at here. Our death, you see, frees us from the control of sin, from the control of the master. I no longer have to respond to sin. Now, Christian liberty, write this down. Christian liberty is not that you're free to sin. Christian liberty means that you're free not to. Somebody said to me one time, said, if I believed like you Baptists believe, and once saved, always saved, he said, I sin all I wanted to. My only response to him was, you mean there's sin you want to do that you don't? My answer to him was simply this. Listen, 
I sin now more than I want to. Christian liberty is not license freedom to sin, it's freedom not to sin. Because we've died with Him, we are free from the Master. We don't have to respond to Him any longer. We're released from that. That's freedom. That's Christian liberty. All right? That's what you need to know. All right? What do you need to consider? That comes to the second point. Number one, our death with Christ is experienced. Now watch this. Is experienced by claiming it, by appropriating it. And that saves us from the power of sin. Now you say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you're thinking, you say, I'm free from the control of sin. Well, I'm pretty much under the control of sin. That may be what you're thinking. And if the self-life died, well, I'm pretty much, he's pretty much alive in me. Remember that the key word is consider. Now here's something practical. Here's the, here's the practical application. How do I experience this? If I'm supposed to be free from the control of sin, but I'm not, how can I be? If I died with Christ, why is it that the old self-life just keeps raising its head and keeps living again? How can I be free from the control? That's the question everybody wants to know. Well, the key is in the word consider. Now, the first 10 verses told you that you died. And he comes to verse 11 and he says, likewise, consider. And that's the bridge. Now, watch this carefully. That's the bridge, the word consider. It's a bookkeeping word. It means to keep account, to reckon, to keep account. Now we think that what faith means is that I convince myself of something that I know isn't true. I convince myself that something's true which I know isn't true. That's what we think faith is. Now we're not talking about positive thinking. There's a lot of good preaching that really maybe just, you know, positive thinking. Now positive thinking, the power of positive thinking is established on this premise that if you believe something hard enough, it'll happen. But faith says you believe something because it has happened. And there's a big difference. Reckoning or considering, now watch this, means that you count on this because it is a fact. You can put it in the book. I count on it because it is a fact. Now let me ask you this question. How were you saved? Now you're going to answer me, in your mind you think you're saying this, well I was saved because I believed or counted on the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And I considered that a fact and I believed that truth and I was saved because I counted on that. I trusted that. How do you know you were saved? That's what I want to ask you. How do you know you were saved? Your answer to that may be, well, I feel like it. Well, that's not enough. 
the answer some of you might have is, well, because the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, and if I count on that fact and trust in that for my salvation, I'll be saved. You're right. And you counted on that because it actually happened, and you trusted that as a fact. My Bible, the same Bible that says Jesus died on the cross, says that I died with Him. Do you ever notice that? The same Bible that says Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again is the same Bible that says I died when He died. I can count on that as a fact. Now how do I consider that or reckon that? It's a twofold negative and positive way. Now here's the, here's the practical application. You might want to jot this down. You might not, but you, you might. If I keep encouraging you, you might. The sooner you do it, the quicker we're out of here. That'll move some of you. Here's, here's the way we do it. Number one, considering that means that I choose against myself. Does yourself tell you stuff? You bet it does. Here's a wife whose husband comes in and he's 30 minutes late for supper. And she's worked all afternoon and sweated over a hot stove and he's 30 minutes late. And he kind of pokes around in his food and says, man, that's cold. Got anything hot? What does yourself tell you to tell him? ha. <laughs> Cook your own. I see those lips moving out. You pull up in a four-way stop sign tomorrow, headed out over here on University and, and Washington Street, and you're ready to take off, and somebody takes off ahead of you, and it was your time. What does yourself tell you to say to that guy? Some of you said that to me. I've seen you. <laughs> I, I've read your lips. Now, to choose against self is what I'm talking about. When Jesus said, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Listen, the cross is not something you carry. The cross is something to crucify somebody on. Now what does it mean to deny self? It's not to deny yourself something. It is to deny self. To deny self is to say no to self. No to self. Second, not only do you choose against yourself, but you consent until your death. You consent until your death. Now the problem with us is not that we're, we've not been crucified, that we're not dead, we just keep postponing the funeral. Do you consent to your death? Are you ready to be dead? That's the question. I'm convinced that the question is not do I want to live a victorious life? That's not the main issue. The main issue is, are you ready to be dead? Are you ready to consent to your death? Well, what does it mean to consent to my death? It means, here it is, that I give up my personal feelings, ambitions, and desires. Personal, selfish, selfish ambitions and desires. I put them away in preference to the will of God. I put them away in preference 
to the will of God. Gypsy Smith, they took Gypsy Smith to New York City to let him visit around the big city lights and after it was all over their little tour they went back to the hotel and somebody asked him, well, what do you think? He said, I didn't see a thing I wanted. He'd already consented unto his death. I choose against self and I consent to my death so that I prefer, I literally prefer the will of God over my own. And I choose against my desires. Here's the positive. And I'll just mention them briefly. I recognize that my, my body, my life is no more than a channel through which God is to operate. I'm, I'm no more than a channel through which God is to operate. And secondly, here it is, I count on the life of Christ to be my life. I count on that. I count on the life of Christ to be my life. For me to live is Christ, the Apostle Paul said. I'm counting on Christ to be my life. I'm not counting on my strength or my cleverness. I'm counting on Him. I'm counting on Him. I'm trusting that Jesus Christ, and I do this daily, I'm trusting that Jesus Christ will be my life. Now we come to the final word. It's the word present. Now this may be the key. Because he says in verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You only have two ways to present your life, either to sin as instruments of unrighteousness or to God and instruments of righteousness. Now, it's, it's this, now would you watch carefully? I know I say that too much, but sometimes I have to beg, you know, for... You to watch. Did you notice that in verse 13 it says, Do not go on presenting, and it's in the present tense linear action, continuously presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But when it comes down to the next present, it's an aorist tense word. And that's so important. I got out my interlinear Greek New Testament this afternoon and you know, I thought, well, I'm going to dig into this just be sure that what I've been saying is really right. It really is. That when he talks about presenting your life to God, it's an aorist tense. It means once and for all. Now, the problem with rededication of one's life, you know, mopping harder and and, and getting degrees and how to mop better. The problem with rededication, I have one problem with rededication, and that's this. You can't rededicate what has not been dedicated. Now for some of us, the problem is not rededication. The problem is once and for all dedication of our life to God. Now listen carefully. The only way to beat the devil is to once and for all dedicate your life to God. 
Now, if you make a decision every Sunday morning whether or not you're going to come to church, now, I don't, I, now I'm not talking to the people that I need to be saying this to, not here. But if you, make a, if, if you make a decision on Sunday morning whether or not you're going to come to church, you're not going to be very consistent in coming to church. Because there's always going to be something happening on Sunday morning. The weather's not going to be good. or You know, Aunt Susie may come and the back hurts and all that stuff. In order to beat the devil in that, in that realm in, with regard to the, holy, the day of God, his holy day, you've got to make a once and for all dedication of your life to that. Once and for all. Now listen, young people. Whip it up here and look at me now for the next five minutes. You've looked around enough. Look right here. The way you beat the devil with regard to human sexuality is once and for all commit your life to God, your body to the Lord. If you make a decision of what, whether or not you're going to be pure, remain pure, whether you're going to involve, get involved in, in sexual practice, illicit, immoral sexual practice, you make a decision concerning that on Friday night in the back seat of a car. I guarantee you, you won't last long. You make a commitment that this body belongs to Jesus Christ and you make that once and for all. And you commit these eyes, and you commit these hands, you commit this e these ears, this ear, you just got one, you commit that once and for all to Him, and you act on the basis of that once and for all commitment. I mean just committing and do it. Just, just live out what you committed. And some people, you know, always wondering, well, how, in the, how can I, I make a decision in a revival meeting and, or at Falls Creek and all that kind of stuff? I don't know how to go, you know, it doesn't last. Well, I mean, the answer is that simple. What you committed to God, just do. For the next thing after commitment is just doing it. And so what he says is this. He says, you come once and for all, you make a, commit, a commitment once and for all that this life, this body, and every member of this body belongs to Jesus Christ and nobody lays claim to it except Him. So if a decision comes as to what I'm doing with this body, I have to ask Him. I'll tell you, He'll tell you. You ever notice that? He'll tell you. I guarantee you, if you ask the Lord, is it right for me to drink, He'll tell you. If He won't tell you right in the head, in the heart, He'll tell you out of the Word. And if you make a commitment, this, is my, this body of mine is His, and you ask Him what you're to do with it, I guarantee you, you will never, never go without an answer. And you may not like the answer you get. You won't, you, you're going to get one. That's what this is here. Now the application. Now listen to this application. A dead man doesn't have a problem. Now you may have dandruff, but I guarantee you a dead man doesn't. And you may have these red places on your face like I do that I have to take medication for. 
but a dead man doesn't. I mean, a dead man doesn't have a problem. The, if, a, if there is a dead man and a living man lives in his body, then he's the one that has the problem. Isn't that wonderful? So if I've died with Christ and yet He lives in me, then any problem is His problem. I just need to know that. I just need to learn that. I don't have a problem. He has. So any problem that comes is not a problem of mine. It's the problem of the Christ who lives in me. Now you talk about liberation, folks. That's liberation theology. Let's pray together. Father, take these words and help us to live victoriously and triumphantly because they're true. In Jesus' name I pray. There are three imitations tonight.